Wolf, get away from those sheep. Bollocks. You're listening to the Wolf and the Shepherd podcast. Broadcasting from Fort Worth in the great state of Texas. Now, get ready for this episode of The Wolf and the Shepherd. Welcome to this episode of The Wolf and the Shepherd. Today we have with us Matt Munson. Matt, glad you could join us. Good to be with both of you. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Now, Matt, you're one of the first guests we've had on the show who has an insight into psychology as it is in the business world. We've had a few Mm. people who are kind of business leaders in their respective fields, but it's always been about the success story and people who have been chasing their kind of dream without ever discussing where things can go wrong and get unbalanced, which is why Mm. we found, you know, having you come on the show would be uh, very informative because it's not something people always think about, you know, when they draw out their timeline, you know, they just focus on a goal, but don't really kind of take into account what they might lose along the way. Now, can you give us just a little bit of a background as to where you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you bringing that intention into the conversation. Something that I'm very passionate about and we are in our work at Sanity Labs is normalizing the harder parts of leadership and entrepreneurship and frankly, adulthood for that matter. So having some space here to to talk about those things and bring them into the light, I think will be great time spent here and excited to be here in it with you. The, the high level background for me is I spent uh, many years as a founder, CEO, most recently, I uh, spent seven years as founder CEO of a company here in Los Angeles called 2020. Was my my first time doing the kind of big company, high scale venture backed journey. And a lot went with that. A lot of uh, um, professional highs and lows and highs and lows and a lot of personal ones as well, which I'm happy to share about here. Um, through that journey, learned a lot about the important, kind of the critical work around managing our own psychology as leaders. And also a lot about all the kind of dark underbelly parts of being in leadership and being an entrepreneur. And along the way, um, I would say the nugget that stuck with me that has carried into my work as a coach and hopefully will carry into our conversation here uh, was that in the early days, I had this this impression that I I was carrying some hard questions. Um, am Am I good enough to do this? Do I have what it takes to be a founder or a CEO or a leader? And if so, why, why inside of me are, the, are there these doubts and these questions and these struggles that I don't see in others? And by others, I meant what I read in the press or uh, on, their, you know, on their blogs or interviews or whatever. And in essence, I was comparing my insides to what I was seeing on their outsides and, and finding it didn't match up. And what I'd love for us to get some time on today is, is to explore why that is and what would be so dangerous about us being more open about what it really is to lead or to create. Um, and that curiosity has driven my transition. since. So we exited the business about two and a half years ago now and have moved in my work um, into coaching full-time other uh, CEOs, entrepreneurs, founders, executives, and um, been a part of building this boutique coaching firm in Los Angeles called Sanity Labs. I think one of the struggles a lot of people have is taking themselves out of that employee and turning themselves into, like you say, a CEO, a founder, whatever, and Mm -hmm. becoming that employer. And so people, they struggle with it. They say, you know, I don't know if I can handle this. I, I don't know if I have the mental capacity to be able to do this. I have this great idea, but Mm -hmm. I'm, kind of pinned back I, i'm afraid to to use yeah. that word right so what would you say to somebody to get them past that fear of saying you know don't be afraid of this you can do it one of the most uh, ubiquitous experiences that i uh, see in founders ceos leaders is this feeling of imposter syndrome where we are carrying this question of who am I to do this thing? And um, the most helpful piece that I've, that I experienced there in my own journey and now see with coaches on the other side of the table is um, 
kind of normalizing that experience and realizing that to one degree or another, we all carry it. And I, it, it seems to be where it gets most poisonous is when we try to quiet it and ignore it, or we assume that we're the only ones going through it and no one else is because no one else is talking about it. And it's been so powerful moving into coaching work and just hearing from probably speak with a dozen or so different uh, CEOs a week. And one of the first things that almost every single person that I speak with says on the very first call, before we even really know each other, they say two things, almost always. One is, I can't believe I'm saying all of this. We only just met. And the second is, I'm carrying these questions about whether I have what it takes to do this. And the first one is really interesting to me because it, it feels like it's very pent up for nearly every leader out there where you get them on the call with someone who even for the first 20 minutes is going to hold some space and invite some real honesty in what's going on. And it's like this floodgate breaks down, which begs the question of what's going on for all of our leaders out there that, that so many of them are feeling this way, that they've got this pent up need to express what's really going on for them. And then the imposter syndrome piece begs this question of, man, if, if most of our leaders are feeling this way, well, what, what does that allow for, for me or the person who may be sitting there with that question for themselves? Right. So uh, can you go into depth about imposter syndrome? So I, I've heard of this before, but can yeah. you explain what imposter syndrome is? Yeah. So it's this feeling that I, uh, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm in this job that I've taken on. And, and, and for a lot of our clients, that's a founder CEO type of job. And I don't really know what I'm doing. I, I wasn't specifically trained for this. No one gave me a playbook every day. The challenges are really overwhelming and there doesn't seem to be many right answers laying around. And so, um, what, 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 what tends to happen is that's so different from other, um, other contexts that we've been in. It's not like school where I could study and there were right answers, especially in our Western education system. And now I can get an A on the test. I'm in a situation where that, 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 that uh, kind of feedback doesn't exist. And so what happens to a lot of us is we turn that inward and we think, oh, it must be me. It must be because I'm carrying these questions because I don't see clear answers. It must be that I'm not enough. There must be others that it, there must be someone out there that if you put them in this role, they would know exactly what to do. And that, so that's the variation of imposter syndrome that we see a lot. Uh, and often uh, in coaching work, some of the early work is an exploration of, well, what is it to, to be someone who has succeeded in life in a lot of places where there were right answers or where you were given grades or where you were promoted or given feedback and to operate in a place where there aren't those kinds of answers. And that, that can be a, a, a transition where uh, exploration is really helpful. Yeah. Now on the surface, looking from the outside when you see perhaps an entrepreneur who has been successful compared to somebody who's been within a company and worked their way up and become yeah. successful are there many personality differences because again you know approaching it from outside the image of an entrepreneur is somebody who really has firm belief in themselves is going to make this happen whatever it takes and you know, they don't want to really take instruction from somebody else and they've done this because they want it done their way. But that might be a mm -hmm. bit of an oversimplified kind of view of what an entrepreneur is compared to somebody within a business. Personality-wise, I mean, obviously you dig way deeper into the psyche yeah. of these people. Um, what, what are the core differences in mentality as they approach, approach their work? Hmm. Well, there certainly seems to be something of a misfit mindset among us entrepreneur types and interest in, in living and working a different way. Um, that comes to mind. Something else that comes to mind that um, may be an interesting area of exploration is I, I see in a lot of us entrepreneur, founder, CEO types that we've experienced something in our upbringing that makes this feel like an attractive place for us to be spending our life. Because it's quite an odd place to dedicate your life to creating something from nothing where the odds of failure are 80, 90%, um, where you don't have a predictable framework to, to succeeding as we've touched on. And something that I, that I see in a lot of entrepreneurs is that some, at some point there was an early promotion that they experienced 
and this goes to the psychology piece, but a lot of us had some experience in our childhoods where we were asked to step up in, uh, in maturity. Um, maybe there was a parent who wasn't emotionally available or wasn't physically available, or there was some addiction or something that went on there where we had to step up. And for people that have experienced something like that early in life, uh, moving into a role like being a leader or a CEO, it, it has kind of a natural appeal to it. it. It feels there's a sense of this, this lines up with what I've been told is my place and my value. And that te- those of us that have experienced that have had those kinds of familial experiences are often drawn to the work. Now there's, that becomes a bit of a false friend as we move into the work. Um, because often what we'll see is that, it can be a source of, of burnout or fatigue when what we've lived throughout our lives is that we're the one that's going to watch out for everyone else. And that can be helpful in the earliest days of starting something, but as something begins to scale and now we're talking about 10 or 20 or 50 or hundreds of people, that, that model becomes a pretty painful one to carry on and happy to talk more about that as well. Okay, um, this question is a bit multifaceted, mainly because I'll probably forget the second part of it if I don't ask it Let's now. Let's do it. But um, are there different motivations for an entrepreneur compared to somebody who joins a business at maybe middle management level and decides, yeah, I'm going to work my way up to the top? I mean, I know on a psychosocial level, it's different because an entrepreneur you know, might have different success measurements compared to somebody Mm. within a business somebody within a business they're obviously trying to make profits for that business and make it run as efficiently as possible whereas with an entrepreneur their aim may just be getting to launch launching the product or service so being an entrepreneur probably takes more of you in terms of your um, commitment to it and maybe opens you up to more sacrificial things in terms of your family, in terms of the time you have to dedicate to it, whereas somebody in a maybe high-powered business position might be able to turn off that switch when they get home. So I guess my questions after that ramble was, um, you know, do you find there are different measurements of success? And is there more, does one particular role uh, end up with more risk of uh, sacrificing those things that matter, trying to get, to that eventual end goal. I think what comes up for me is we kind of glamorize the, the, the rock star founder entrepreneur in our culture. And we tend to glamorize the work ethic and also the financial success. Um, what I found, I guess, just starting with my own journey, uh, once I got into year one, two, three of being an entrepreneur and even going the more glamorous kind of venture backed route, um, it very quickly becomes not very glamorous. It very quickly becomes, uh, the, the hours very quickly become something that feel not sustainable. So this, I, this myth that there are these entrepreneurs that are working 80, hundred hour weeks and they're in it for the love. Um, it is, it's a pretty dangerous model that we, um, that we kind of lionize and not a very effective or sustainable one. And, and the second piece that comes up is the money. Um, I, I, I don't, I have yet to meet an entrepreneur who once you dig beneath the service, the surface, or with whom once you dig beneath the service, it's actually about the money. The money is always a stand in for something else. So to be crazy enough to, to go, you know, to start with nothing from the beginning and to be paid nothing and have no resources and be trying to create something to actually get there. It it tends to be that we are driven by something that's, that's a lot bigger than money. And this goes back to the kind of questions that many of us carry, um, around, um, what would it be for me to make my life matter? Am I enough? What am I living up to? And, uh, these tend to be the more fundamental drivers than the money itself. So going along that money route, let's say you've got somebody that they've got a pretty good job, right? They, they're working for corporate America, they're paying their bills or whatever, but they have this idea and they Mm -hmm. know this can work, but there's that psychological part that how can I leave this guaranteed income 
and go chase this dream. It, what would you say to somebody like that to to say, you know, do you take the leap or do you not take the leap? Yeah, I, I'd be curious about what the third option is. So if option one is keep the job and forget the dream and option two is quit the job and start the dream, I'd be curious what the third path is. Um, it's an interesting time to be exploring these things. And I think as a culture, we're moving away from traditional models of, of business where, you know, our grandparents had worked with one company for 50 years and that's what it meant to have a career. What comes up for me is um, it is, it's, it is fairly low cost to start a new business today. And there's a lot of resources out there, everything from setting up a website to developing products or manufacturing products and testing ideas more lately. Uh, I'm a big fan of the lean startup model, both for first time entrepreneurs and for big businesses that are testing new product lines. And the whole idea behind lean and Eric Reese wrote a great book called the lean startup that, that walks through a lot of these principles. But the whole idea was before I get too far down the road in building this thing, how can I validate the underlying assumptions? So if someone's got a job and they have an idea, I'd be curious to explore with them. How might we explore, how, how might we go and validate this idea by talking to prospective customers or partners or building prototypes and seeing if we can sell something that isn't fully baked out so that we lower the risk of the transition. And like I said, this would apply equally. We've got, uh, I've got multiple clients uh, that are uh, very well funded, but perhaps not finding the traction they're hoping for. So with them as well, we're applying the same principles and looking at um, how can we, rather than looking at this new product that we might build, that'll take six or 12 months, how can we actually break down the, the, the vision into the underlying hypotheses and then go and test those in a period of days or weeks instead of months so that we get data back and can be very informed in, in, in have very much de-risked this vision before we move and make the investment. Right. Now, you, one of your businesses, 2020, uh, was very successful in terms of the amount of crowdfunding it had. Now, hmm. does that put more pressure on you because people buy into the vision and you feel you have more people to let down as opposed to getting a loan maybe from a bank where it's really just you in the bank, which is almost like a pers personality-less figurehead, you know, writing you a check. Um, mm. did, did that put a bunch of pressure on you, having other people put their money in there and you feeling that it's not just yourself, you've got to kind of please, you've got to, uh, you know, perform for all these people who have put the money in? Yeah, I think it did. And um, I, back to this um, topic of what we glamorize and then what the, what the reality is of, of living something like this. Uh, so I think we really glamorize startups and venture capital backed startups. And what is it to have someone give you millions or tens of millions of dollars to fund your idea? And especially in, our, in, the, in the current generation, that this is, it seems to be viewed as kind of very much the rock star lifestyle of I'm going to have this idea, I'll work with my friends, we'll raise all this money from these fancy investors and fast forward, we'll have fancy cars and mansions and whatever else. And um, I am one of the most widely circula circulated um, uh, pieces that I wrote um, on my blog was about the feeling of, of indentured servitude that I experience and that I, that I hear from many others who are running venture backed companies. And it's not to say the investors are bad. On the contrary, we had phenomenal, supportive, deeply human investors. It's the self-imposed feeling of, of, um, of obligation as you're alluding to of, wow, this thing started. I, I started this looking for a sense of freedom and looking for control over my time and my destiny. And now I've got um, people that have given me a tremendous amount of money that money has come from pension funds and retirement funds of, of people that I will never even meet. And now the responsibility is here, not only for our employees and their families and their well-being, and not only for our customers and their experience, but also for this, well, for all these other people. And that is, um, it can be very weighty, uh, particularly in the downturns. And every company, even those that succeed wildly, uh, it's a bit of a roller coaster ride, lots of ups and downs. And on the downs, that weight comes pretty quickly. At least it did for me. Yeah. Now I know this might make me sound very intellectual, but I've actually watched, I think all 20 seasons of Shark Tank, but mm. I've also watched every episode of Paw Patrol. So it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. But, um, so that yeah. doesn't give you no. any credence, no credence with whatsoever. intellectual. 
But my, yeah. my point with this... And, and by yeah. the way, you should bring up Peppa the Pig. Peppa Pig. No, not Peppa the Pig, mate. It's Peppa Pig. It's just no, Peppa Pig. No, it's Peppa the Pig. No. And, and you keep trying to get me to jump in muddy puddles because mm. that's what people in Britain do. Yeah. But you see, he watches it. He doesn't even have any kids that age who watch it. I've watched Paw Patrol and stuff because I have a kid that age who watches it. He just watches it for fun. Yes. Yeah. So where you, I was, guys, you guys are adorable <laughs> together. <laughs> so where I was going with that is that one piece of advice they always seem to give on Shark Tank when they get an entrepreneur on there is that if they have any other side gig or main job, that they want them to kind of get rid of that or put it on the mm. back burner so they can focus you know, entirely on this new project. So when you get something which is crowdfunded, does that place some pretty unrealistic expectations upon you that they don't understand that you still want to live a normal life and be a normal person? Because a check from a bank, it's really, you know, other than, you know, you're paying off the loan amount and, you know, putting in quarterly or yearly reports, whatever, there's not too much interaction because it's purely about the money. But when people invest their own money into you and multiple people do that do you does that create more pressure in terms of you feel that you have to put yourself in situations which normally you wouldn't do if you got that check from the bank yeah for me what comes up there is the question of alignment so on shark tank i would venture that what the investors are looking for is commitment in a sense that if we give you money you're going to be all in and we can imagine that if I'm investing in your company, it's better for me that you are all in. It's better for me that you are working only on this, thinking only of this. Now, is it better for you? That's a different question. And the reason I bring up alignment is um, very few co-founders, very few entrepreneurs talking with prospective investors are, are, take the time in advance to have a conversation about what, what, would really, what they would really love what kind of business life impact they're looking to have. I meet a lot of even co-founders, people that are starting businesses together that have never taken an hour to talk about what they both view as success or what are they both willing to sacrifice and what are they not willing to sacrifice? And for me, I'm less interested in everyone who's listening to this, who wants to start a company deciding that they got to go all in and it's got to be their whole life, hundred hours a week. And I'm more interested in how we can have more people having conversations about what would it be to live a life that would help them to feel deeply alive? What would it be for them to have a career that would support a life like that? And for those of us that are looking to start companies, what might it be like to build a business where there's alignment between the founders, employees, customers, investors, uh, because it can seem like a quick win to get, to get into misalignment. Uh, but if we can look for a place where there's alignment across all those constituencies, that is a recipe for scale, success, and impact. And long-term, that recipe, I believe, is always going to win. So would that go more to the fact of the psychological aspect, right? So in the United States, success is measured by money. How much mm -hmm. money does your company make? How much money do you have? How many houses do you have? How many cars do you have? And so we kind of look at that as the measure of success versus yeah. maybe how many lives have you touched? How much change have you brought about? Uh, there's got to be a lot of people that look at the fact that say, hey, I want this mansion. I want my private plane. I want to go on a rocket ship shaped like a phallic object and float around for two minutes and say I'm a spaceman just to let everybody know that I'm successful. Yeah. Um, so I might share a bit of my personal journey as a founder. Um, I wrote a post about this that was called 17 million raised and I was fried. And uh, somehow Google has decided that that is a, a salient conversation because now if you Google founder burnout, it's one of the top results. As a result, uh, I get one or two founders emailing me a day who are, um, who are finding themselves in a very similar spot. So, so I might share, about, share a bit about that. Um, in my last company, 2020, that, that you mentioned, uh, about four years in, we had gone through several major pivots. We started as a, as a, with, with an idea to help democratize college admissions, had trouble finding traction, moved into consumer photography, 
that leveled out and we ended up evolving into our final model of, of, of business to business licensing, which financially was wonderful, that progress, personally very difficult because I found myself four years into this business, having raised all of this money from all these people, having dozens of employees and tens of thousands of customers and realizing uh, one afternoon in Colorado that I just didn't care about the work we were doing. It just, it felt so far removed from anything that felt personally important to me. And that was a really scary awakening because we were, we were in no place to sell the business. I, I felt really on the hook for our investors and our employees. And I felt dead inside when it came to the work. Now, can you see uh, people who are on maybe a, titanic type voyage with their business you can see the iceberg up ahead but perhaps they can't and when that situation arises mm. are some people so stubborn that you can't avert them from hitting that iceberg and they have to learn that themselves or do most of the people you talk to they have been through some level of stress or failure either through the business or with a personal life that they're actually very very open to the advice you give do you come across those people who are so stubborn that there's just nothing you can say which will help them until they do hit that pitfall and they come crawling back i would venture having only met the two of you that for all of the um challenges that will matter most in our lives in the next 20 years that we're all going to hit the icebergs and i i view um the work of a coach uh, as being an ally uh, and someone that is there for the ride, irrespective of the icebergs that come or don't come or those we hit or those we miss. Uh, and what I hear, what I, what I experience first myself as a leader and now hear from others is that finding um, someone that'll be there and be in it irrespective is the whole thing. Everything else, the frameworks, the training, um, the, 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 even the, the academic psychology of it, they're kind of all just tools. And really it's all about just being willing to be there. And, uh, I can see between the two of you and the banter that you have back and forth that you guys know a bit about having a friendship like that, which is super cool to see. Um, that's a lot of what we aim for in the work. So going along with the, uh, Titanic metaphor, <laughs> you, you hit the iceberg, right? Hmm. It, at what point do you look at that business and say, stop rearranging the chairs on the Titanic? Because it, yeah. you've already hit the iceberg, it's sinking, and there's so many people that they have this business, right? And they, they think it's still surviving, but they've already hit the iceberg. They're rearranging the chairs on the Titanic. What, it, you know, psychologically could you put into their mind to say, Hey, it, you know, it, it's time to punt, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is a tough one, right? Because in our culture, we glamorize uh, those who never say die, who never give up. And we're all taught that wh whether it's entrepreneurship or athleticism or another area of life, that, that the stick to itiveness is, is such a big part of it. That's a big part of our culture, uh, Western culture as well. <sighs> now, do you find. So, when. Do, so sorry, when so what comes up for me is when, when do we give up? When is enough enough? Right. I, I think that's a tough question. Um, a, a shift in framework that, that I find very supportive there in conversations with leaders or entrepreneurs that are, that are asking themselves those questions is what happens if we look at this and in, in, uh, not as this is the company, this is your life's work. What if we look at the company as simply a container? that you're here for some mission and that's evolving and you're maybe still figuring that out. Um, this company itself is, is simply a legal entity. So whether this company should, we should stick with it or we should sell it or we should pivot it. Um, what if we hold it as a container? So that, so, so by doing that, what are we doing? We're taking off, off the line here, some things that feel like they're really at stake. My, what will I do? What will the rest of my life look like if I, if I fail at this or will I ever get another job or will anyone ever work with me again? Or am I giving up on my dream or my mission or my life's work? If I let this go, if we hold it as a container, well, maybe this company, I mean, I'm thinking of, um, uh, 
Dennis Crowley, who founded Dodgeball and then Foursquare, and had a had a mission around bringing people together and using technology to do so. Now, whether he sold Dodgeball to Google or shut it down or kept pushing the envelope on it, it really was just the container. And he was really curious to continue to lean into the work of bringing people together. And that, um, that stripping back of what's all packed into this particular company can be a source of liberation. And that can lead people more toward clarity than to a specific answer on whether, you know, whether, whether they should be going down with the ship or throwing lifeboards overboard. Yeah. Now what percentage of people who come to you are at that ready to quit point? And is it difficult when you can see, yeah, they really should quit and actually having to give them that advice because you can see it really is going to be a Titanic voyage. Everything is going to be pretty much lost if they don't, change their game plan or make some changes yeah uh well i don't know that i ever know um if the question is what percent of people come to me holding some big questions about how to have more of the work and success and life that they would like the percent is very high uh hopefully all we certainly aim to be in conversation with people that are holding big questions like that. Um, I, uh, part of the commitment of coaching is that the client's going to know better than we do what, what they need or what their business needs. And we're not here to tell them what they need or what their business needs. What we are here to do is to be guides and allies, listeners and partners in holding space to explore those questions. And just speaking to my, the, the benefit that I found myself during my time as an entrepreneur with my own coaches it's very hard to find people that can hold space in that way or be partners like that. Particularly as you experience any kind of success, it feels like everybody wants something from you, whether it's your investors that want to know about returns or employees that want to raise or your romantic partner that wants to know how the financial future is looking for the family to find space with someone that can simply sit and be there in some of the complexities that you're holding is pretty rare. So we aim more for that than for right answers. And that tends to be where also where the magic happens. Now, what are the first signs that somebody should really look out for that things are perhaps going awry and they need to seek, you know, wiser counsel on their journey? Yeah, well, um, I may be biased here, but I would love to see more people starting on day zero looking for support, uh, whether that's a formal coach or whether that's simply taking space for themselves to do some of the foundation work before diving into a change like starting a company. Um, I think for me, speaking of personal mission, my personal mission is to help more people come into connection and support with one another. And that can look formal like a therapist or a coach, but it can also just look like uh, uh, deciding to be more open with the people around us about the journey that we're experiencing. So we, we've talked a little bit about the loneliness that leaders experience. And a lot of that loneliness, I think, comes from this myth that successful leaders are these like brave, brilliant people that hold the concerns and the problems in their own head. And then they solve it sitting in their office alone. And then they dispel the wisdom to they distribute the wisdom to their team and give them marching orders. And I don't know that that, that myth that we hold of leadership is doing us any favors. I, I would, I would counter that leaders who are open and in connection and support not only formally, but also with their co-founders, teams, romantic partners, that those people are, are far more successful because they're more grounded and more, more at ease with the journey and the questions at hand. Now, I think one common belief about entrepreneurs is that they start on their own because everybody else tells them no or doesn't share mm -hmm. their vision. And so perhaps the advice they have sought from family members or, you know, their peer group have been very negative. Oh, this won't work. You know, this is going to take too much time commitment. It's going to fall apart. And so do those type of people reject advice until a lot of the time until it's too late compared to say somebody in business who they might be in a pretty cushy, well-paid kind of middle upper management job, but things only become hectic when something, you know, quite startling happens, like the business unexpectedly expands or they take on another business, their role uh, changes, they have to take on more work. And so obviously that hits their personal and family life. I mean, is there, is there a difference between that, that entrepreneurs can sometimes be a little bit harder to get through to because right from day one, they didn't have people believe in them or sharing their vision? I don't know if that um, is unique to entrepreneurs. 
Um, what come, I guess two things that come up for me as you're, as you're painting those two different pictures. Um, one is um, the transition from entrepreneur to leader and the need to, in the early days, have this, what, what some people call this reality distortion field of, well, I, irrespective of any negative signal, I can see this thing that I would like to have happen in the world and I'm going to figure it out. And then at some point, the transition to leader happens where, where we think, oh no, like I actually need other people to come around me in this journey. And that means taking in information and needs and requests and learnings from so many other people, not just me. And that can be a um, particularly challenging journey for us kind of crazy entrepreneur types. The other thing that comes up, as you mentioned that is um, for any of us, like what, irrespective of whether we're in a traditional business job or a founder leader job or an entirely different job, there are points where we hit this experience of the thing that got me here is not going to help me go forward. And that may happen in a career, it may happen leading a company, it may happen in a marriage or in parenthood. Um, but that for me is, um, is, a, is a shared experience across all of us as adults. And, and, uh, um, and some of the, the things that can be supportive there can be supportive whether the evolution is happening in my role as a CEO or my role as a father. Um, so irrespective of where our listeners find themselves, some of the same exploration may, may be helpful there. So do you ever find when somebody has this great idea, and, and we keep using the term CEO, we keep using the term founder, but maybe there's somebody that's kind of that creative aspect, and maybe they're not really the CEO, maybe they're not really the founder, maybe they're just this creative guy that is sitting over here to the side and they got to have that CEO guy. They got to have that founder guy. They got to have that guy in that, uh, I'm sorry, guy or gal in that mindset of being able to run the company, so to speak, because Mm -hmm. a lot of creative types might not be able to do the running of the company, so to speak. What would you say to somebody that maybe has that creative aspect in there, but maybe doesn't have the chops, so to speak, to actually run the company? Yeah, I think of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak as one of the most famous stories of an example like that. Um, when I when I meet people that are thinking of starting businesses or have ideas for products and are trying to think about how to even get off the ground, Um, one of the pieces of advice that I'll often share is to look to build the founding team such that uh, that team has all of the core skills necessary to bring the product to market. Now, depending on what kind of business we're talking about, it could be any mix of skills, uh, but it can often mean the, uh, the technical or creative skills to actually build the thing from nothing. And also the, the business or distribution skills to figure out how to get early customers for that product. Um, hence the example from Apple. Um, that's what comes to mind for me as you highlight that, that w- a partnership around that and a team around that could certainly be of support. Yeah, so when you said you kind of got to the point with your business that you just didn't care anymore or just didn't feel yeah. the passion, how did that manifest itself with you? Did you start getting stressed or was it just manifested through like lethargy and making excuses to kind of maybe transfer some responsibilities onto somebody else and making an early bailout plan from it before you really, I guess, announced that decision, even, I guess, to yourself. Because sometimes we flitter with thoughts in our head and we second guess ourselves whether we want to continue through with something, but it's not until we actually communicate that to somebody close to us that that's really kind of dropping the anchor and making an exit strategy. How did it manifest with you once you kind of decided that decision? Could you just not wait to get out of there or and by the way before you answer that i love that because we like to put responsibility on other people oh yeah because we hate working yeah we've actually got a dog doing the uh post-production actually in the editing yeah yeah useless but yeah somebody else doing it not us absolutely i hope it's a wolf not a dog yeah (laughs) um Oh, no. If it was a wolf, it'd be him, and it would never happen. Never so happened. we'd still be on, like, mm-hmm. episode one after a yeah. year. Yeah. yeah. 
So the first thing I think I felt was a sense of relief of just actually seeing what was going on. Uh, I don't know if this happens for you guys, but I, I feel like for me that I can carry something for so long and feel the burden of it. And if I can even begin to see more clearly what it is that's happening, that feels there's some relief just in that. Uh, that was followed quickly by a sense of like, what the, what in the world am I going to do? I, I have this company that's financially successful that I feel on the hook for to see, to see through. And does this mean that I need to leave a CEO and find someone else or that we need to sell or what, what are the options? And I think there was for me an impulse of wanting quick relief and then quickly seeing that there was no quick relief was going to be available. And that that's what I wrote about in the piece. And what I think others have found quite resonant is this feeling of, okay, I, I'm actually, I'm not going to quit tomorrow. I can see that I'm out of alignment. What options do I have in the short term and in the long term? And, and for me, it began an exploration of so long as I'm in the role and running this business, where can I find more of what matters to me? And we began doing things like, like writing more openly about the entrepreneurial journey that was an area that felt very high impact for me. We began donating a portion of proceeds to causes that we cared about. We began modeling a workplace that was more supportive of the humans involved in, in writing and speaking publicly about some of those changes. So looking for things that where the work could begin to matter again personally to me. And then the other piece was at, at, um, aligning with my board and investors at the time that I was feeling a sense that this might not be another 10 years for me. And how could we move toward a plan either of succession or sale of the business and, and being open about that? I, I found quite a bit of relief in inv inviting those around me into some of the questions I was carrying, not with solutions, but with an openness of, hey, this is what I'm feeling. Um, what, what might we look to do here that would um, help all of us land in a place where we need to be? Yeah. Now, what are the other signs other than perhaps you're having to commit far too many hours, which is sacrificing family life and friendships and mm -hmm. stuff, and the fiscal stranglehold. What are the other signs that come out that perhaps somebody is struggling in what they're trying to do? Well, those 3 a.m. wake-ups are a pretty, com pretty common <laughs> I found myself staring at the ceiling a lot of nights uh, halfway through sleep cycles, and I hear that from a lot of other leaders as well. Um, I hear uh, depression, anxiety, isolation, uh, drug and alcohol addiction. Uh, those are big ones, um, all kind of different signs of, of uh, burnout or misalignment and a need to examine uh, what may be going on. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes sense to me. But uh, let's let's go more in the psychology of managers. Right. So mm. Let's go away from entrepreneur or entrepreneurs a little bit, right? It and, is. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like Spanish when you say that. Yeah, you got to say it a certain way. So, what about that middle management, that manager? That yeah, they're not gonna go off. They're not gonna be an entrepreneur and get into their psychology a little bit about how to take care of their employees. We hear mm -hmm. the jokes that there's memes about, you know, oh, I want more money, but you're going to give me a pizza party and things like that. Where would you talk to those managers of employees and say, here's where I can get into that psychology and kind of guide you to get your employees to get behind you and do a good job? Yeah. So what comes up for me there is a question of motivation. Uh, so for anyone listening that it maybe is a first time manager or growing in the role as a manager or leader is I'd be curious about their belief on how they, they uh, view others that they're leading uh, being motivated. We might look at a question of in, intrinsic versus as extra, extrinsic motivation. So a leader who believes that uh, their people are going to be lazy unless they have a carrot or a stick is going to behave very differently as a manager than, than someone who believes that, their people are inherently motivated by certain things. And some things that come up for me as major inherent motivators are things like a sense of belonging, a sense of mastery, love and acceptance. And um, my, my coach many years ago once said to me, if you think people will work hard out of fear, you ought to see them work for love. 
And I think there's something there um, where if we can help a manager to look at their people as capable of being driven internally, as capable of trust, of capable of learning and growing. And then we look at the role of the manager as, as, as simply to provide clarity, resources and care, and then step back and trust the inherent motivation of the employee that's just going to be a very different approach to the role than the manager who's coming in and thinking, I got to, I got to check in and make sure everyone's on their chair by eight 30. And, and that by five, I'm going to be the last person here so I can see who's sticking around. And, um, that's, it's, it's a, um, it's a very different, uh, way of holding the role. Now, do you find there's a difference between males and females in terms of what they feel their role is within a business when it comes to things getting too much for them because men can get away with a lot more traits which aren't necessarily seen as negative such as being selfish to achieve something whereas you know a lot of people if a woman's selfish they kind of get labeled a bitch or whatever and they don't get that same kind of label of oh she's super focused on all this type stuff so do you have to give different types of advice for people in the exact same situation depending on what gender they are I think we as white men are just beginning to understand um, the the hurdles, complexities, and unique challenges that women and minorities have had to overcome in any role of leadership or management or entrepreneurship. Um, so the answer to your question, I, I think, is um, the, the advice is going to be different at times. And and I what comes up there for me is mostly being um, whether me as a coach or someone who's listening as the manager or an investor um, or even a friend to a leader or a manager to, to, to hold space to acknowledge that their experience is going to be different uh, most likely and that their challenges they've overcome to get to where they are are, are likely different. Um, and it's easy um, to be, to be, um, overly simplistic um, about those challenges if you haven't lived them. Yeah. Right. So going right along those lines, as a manager of employees, right, how important is that friend thing? Going back to, you know, the great sitcom The Office, Michael Scott always wanted to be everybody's friend, right? And Mm. is it bad for a manager to try to be friends with their employees or do they have to divide that line and say no i can't be your friend i'm i've got to separate that out yeah so we might hold that the the role of a ceo or a leader let's start there is to do three things hold the vision recruit and retain the team needed to execute that vision and resource that team with capital, clarity, and care. And that last piece is interesting as it pertains to your question, whether you're a CEO or leader or manager, to give the people that you're managing capital, clarity, and care. So capital is the easiest one. Is there budget or is there not budget for the work at hand? Clarity and care is where it gets a little fuzzy. And to your question, so, so, so clarity is what, what work matters now and what doesn't. Why does all the work matter in the first place? Care is ensuring that each person, like acknowledging these people are humans and that there is a need for human support for the ups and downs of any work that's happening. And that's where it can get fuzzy is what is it to be with someone lending both the, the clarity of, is the work getting done? Are we focused on what matters? How is this person succeeding? Are they following through with what they're committing to? Are they getting honest feedback about how they're doing in the role? If their job is at risk, are we communicating that? How are we handling it? That's clarity. Care is, how how is it for you being in this role, carrying the pressures you're carrying, trying to grow in the ways that the role is requiring you to grow? What do you need from me as a manager or us as a team around you to support your personal growth in that? And I would posit that the danger comes when we have one without the other. So can I be friends with someone I'm managing? Well, to me, that sounds a lot like care. Can I care about the person I'm managing and make sure they have human support and someone to listen to them? I hope so. Now, can I also give that person honest, critical feedback when they're not doing a great job in something? Or can I help 
to them to mere blind spots when they're wasting time on something that isn't a critical priority to the team or the business this month or this quarter? Well, I hope so. And so we see that both of those things are needed and that attempting to lead or manage with one without the other is, is where the where the danger really comes. Do you find that managers who not perhaps find it difficult to have some type of friendship with their staff and employees, do you think sometimes that's a coping mechanism because they might be really great at the whole business part of things but pretty poor on the social part of things? Or do you think it's just a sign of single-mindedness where some people see their staff as kind of almost like disposable in a way, as in they can be replaced? I mean, is it a very distinct fork in the road or are most managers mm. kind of a mix of a mix of both who have those kind of social issues with mixing with their staff? For me, when my coach said to me that people will work much harder for love, I found that so weird and so inaccessible at the time. Uh, I, I can remember when we hired our first handful of employees thinking, oh my word, I did not factor in how, how much I, I it didn't even occur to me that we were going to have to hire lots of people, which I know sounds crazy because we're starting this company and, uh, you know, this venture back company that obviously we were going to have lots of employees, but the experience of having them. And then the idea that there would even be an element of love was so foreign to me. And, um, I think we, I think we're in the midst of an evolution in how we understand the workplace that comes up for me. And I think also, um, I think we're beginning to explore the, the impact of inviting people to bring their humanity into their work and what that means for the dynamic between leaders and employees. Um, for my personal journey, what I, what I, it is, this ties back to the experience of feeling kind of burned out and feeling like the way that I had been leading wasn't going to work anymore. I found myself having to retool my understanding of what it meant to be a leader and to explore what it was to actually let my team in to know what was going on in my own journey so that I could invite them along from a place of love and connection and move away from a place of separation and isolation in, in coaching, we call this, uh, we talk about power over power with and power under and power over is, is kind of the traditional way of like, Hey, I'm the leader. I'm going to tell you how it is. I'll figure out the hard problems and tell you what work to do and power with is, Hey, Hey, we're in this together. We have got a shared mission where we're going. What if we explore together, how we might get there, how we might divide up the work, the commitments we're making for the way we're going to work with one another and, and invite each other to share openly how that's going along the way. And that, in my own experience, that transition was hugely powerful for me as a leader and us as a company. And I've watched uh, different versions of that play out with clients along the way. And it, it seems to be just uh, where things are going and, and, and ought to go for us as a, as a working culture. Yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, love and fear as motivators. And also the shepherd mentioned Michael Scott in the office. I remember when they asked him that question, you know, do you want to be loved or feared? And he answered something like both. I want them to be afraid of how much they love me. Um, <laughs> that's, right. a, that, that's a bit of an aside. Um, obviously, there are some businesses which are family run or it's a couple which are running it where perhaps one partner or one segment of that partnership might be feeling the stress and strain of carrying certain things within the business whereas the other person or other group might not be feeling those things yeah and they might feel that oh well i've got to suck it up for the you know good of my relationship with my wife or with my friends and partners um is that going to be at some point that suppression is that going to lead to disaster down the line if that isn't coped with? You know, people are afraid to kind of stick their hand up and say, well, actually, I'm not really happy at the moment. I'm struggling with this. I'm working 80 hours a week. And you guys, you know, you all seem to be happy and getting away with like taking every other Friday off and coming in late on Mondays, mm -hmm. but I'm taking all the stress. Do you find that working dynamic, that whole type of familiarity breeds contempt type thing uh, does come up inevitably? after time goes by and so it's that that kind of adds more stress to the business outside of it just being successful as such it sure sounds like it doesn't it yeah for me what comes up is a question of um clarity on who owns what how are we dividing the workload here 
And then also, um, where do we create openness to share with one another the experience we're having and how that's going? And I think for every team, whether it's a husband, wife, or friends, or family business, or a more traditional business, those are challenges. And um, often with, with leaders, one thing that we'll explore is how are they creating rituals for the team that create alignment? And then how are we creating rituals for the team that create this like openness or opportunity for connection and support? And a lot of teams I meet, they'll have their weekly operations meeting where they'll check in on the business, how things are progressing and any blockers to work getting done. But they've got no time set aside for actual connection or for opening up questions about how are things going for us as a team or how are things going with us supporting one another? What do we need from one another as humans that we're missing? And separating those and having space for each can be a big step forward for most teams that we meet. So what would you say to somebody that just got punted right into a position of leadership? They, mm. they were a great employee. They were able to do their job very well. And now all of yeah. a sudden, they're going to be a manager. Now they have direct reports. And they're sitting here saying, well, I did my job good. I was left alone. I wasn't micromanaged. Now, all of a sudden, I've got to manage these people. I've got to do all this. What would your advice be to someone like that that now has to be a manager, be a leader? Yeah. What comes up for me there is clarity and support. So if, I, if I'm simply because I, I knew the craft well, does not necessarily mean that I know how to manage people well that are doing the craft, whether that's coding or sales or anything else. And so for that person, I'd be curious, um, how might they find clarity and what success in the role looks like? So a lot of us leader types tend to promote people without actually getting on paper with them. What is it? How are we going to measure success? What are you accountable for? When are we going to check in and so forth? And then the second piece is, um, is support. So uh, how might we plug this person in with someone that even you know, formally or informally can help to mentor them in what it is to be a manager or a leader so that we're not simply plopping them in and hanging them out to dry, which we often do. Right. So going along with those same lines, just because that person does their job fantastically doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily make them a leader that can mm -hmm. actually go out and you know manage people and all that, which is kind of what you're alluding to, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think a mistake we often make is taking some of our best people and quote unquote, promoting them into management simply because they were great. And if that's where they want to go and they're curious to develop in that way, fantastic. And the question is, how do we give them clarity and support? But also I think we, we often um, uh, lionize leaders and managers uh, above people that are um, individual contributors in, in the workplace or in the creative space. And I don't know that that does us any favors. So um, in at 2020, something that we spent time on was exploring career progression for people that wanted to be in management or leadership roles and also those who didn't and allowing the same kind of financial and impact progression for each. Yeah. Do you find that some people consider a weakness having to find counsel? Because the whole thing about psychology is people sharing perhaps their philosophy, but people see psychology is almost closely aligned with psychiatry as in it's a weakness to go and get that advice do you find some people are reluctant because they don't want to admit there's a problem because they have to be strong or appear strong to everybody else to make them feel they're still in control of the ship but you know is that is that something you find that people are, are reluctant because they do see it as a sign of failure that they haven't been able to figure it all out themselves i hope we're moving away from that and but it's certainly uh the concern resonates as you're sharing it. Um, I mean, part of what drives me in this work was watching my own father who was at, at a point in his life, a very successful entrepreneur and ran into some hardships and was quite isolated in the role and um, ended up with significant addictions and health issues as a result. Uh, so for me, I carry a deep curiosity about how we can destigmatize support. And why is it that an NFL quarterback can have a coach and a throwing coach and a mental coach and that that's viewed as cool, which I think it's cool. Uh, but that we look at a, a, a CEO or a manager or an entrepreneur or anyone else 
And then we stigmatize them looking for support from a therapist or a coach or anyone else in their life. And for me, it's, it's time to get away from that. Uh, I, I, the, the most talented people that I see are looking for support to help them manage their own psychology, to help them improve, to help them mirror blind spots. And uh, I think that's pretty cool. So I'm hoping that's where we're going. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure it, using that sports metaphor, right, about, you know, even the professional athletes, they still practice. And, of course, the Wolf, you know, he played professional soccer. He didn't just run out there and play a soccer game. He still had to practice. So mm. professional athletes still practice. So totally get that metaphor. So, uh, Matt, we certainly appreciate you joining us today. Can you tell mm. everybody how they can get a hold of you, social media, uh, your website, all that good stuff. Absolutely. I'm at mattmunson.me, Twitter, M-A-T-T-M-U-N-S, and you can check out Sanity Labs at sanitylabs.co. And we'd love to hear from any of your listeners. That That's fantastic. And, of course, uh, all those links and everything are going to be on our website, so you can find those as well. Matt, Super glad you could join us. Uh, We learned a lot today, and that will do it for this episode of The Wolf and the Shepherd, and we will catch you on the next one. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Wolf and the Shepherd podcast. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, thewolfandtheshepherd.com, to your friends and colleagues. And please leave us a positive review on iTunes when you get a chance. Check us out on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for additional content. Join us next time for another episode of The Wolf and the Shepherd. Ooh.